if there's one thing that we've learned with every single client we've worked with over these last 13 years, every single one, we've never concocted anything. I told you this before, and I'll memorialize it here for the general public. Brad and Victor have one brand pillar, and it is this. We don't make shit up. You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing that, the best conversations we've had with significant brand builders, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating impactful brands. Season three is focused on unpacking the topic of branding. We talk to people who design brands, own brands, build brands, and even those who hire for brands. We explore what brands look like and how they behave across a wide spectrum, from world-renowned brands with massive budgets like Spotify to companies that are making big waves on small budgets. If you're looking for insights on the best ways to invest in and build your brand, this is the season for you. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Scott English. Scott is the co-founder of Scott & Victor, a two-person agency helping startups express their brands. After fittingly getting an English degree and graduating from the Portfolio Center, he went on to a 20-year career at Leo Burnett, working in big teams on huge brands. He shares the lessons from moving from a big agency to a really small one and how they rebranded Rx Bar by bringing the client's idea to life. He also shares the secrets of a really great brief. Enjoy. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Scott. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so, so I'd like to start, uh, I think the, the, the best place for, for me to start this interview with you is to understand this idea. You've got some quite strong uh, opinions and feelings around the idea of um, big versus small. Um, you know, and it's sort of tied a little bit into your origin story and, and how you've ended up doing your work. So, so would you mind sort of just sharing a little bit around this idea of, of big versus small and, and where that came from and how it influences your, your work in building the brands that you do? Well, uh, like everything else in my career, uh, uh, post Portfolio Center, um, I, I owe all of my wisdom uh, in advertising to uh, Leo Burnett, um, as many of us fondly call it, the University of Leo Burnett, where I learned everything. And advertising was a really different animal when I started um, in the late 80s and early 90s, and everything was big budget um, commercials. And for big blue chip clients at, you know, like a Leo Burnett, big global clients. And they required legions of people, uh, teams and teams of creative <laughs> Um, you know, creatives and, and creative directors and group creative directors and executive creative directors. And that's just on the creative side. You, so you can imagine on the account side, all the different levels and all the lieutenants and sergeants or whatever they, they were called. And that was my reality for many, many years. In a way, you were very coddled as a creative person because all the other um, functions of making advertising and commercials and everything else was taken care of by someone else, another team of people. And so we're free to think. And for some of us, you know, that was great for a while, but we wanted to get, if if you're really, really, really into making a creative statement, you really want to get your hands dirty and you really want to see behind the scenes. You really want to know what you're talking about and who you're talking to. And 
that requires a, a, a deeper connection to a client. And we were held at bay. We couldn't get near enough to our clients. And it was only towards the end of my uh, tenure, mine and Victor's tenure at Leo Burnett, when we won the Turner Classic Movies account. And it was not really a big enough account for a Leo Burnett. They didn't have this, the kind of money, but they certainly had the sheen. Um, and it was a creative it was a creative portfolio play. We needed more better creative work in our portfolio at Leo Burnett. And so uh, because it was such a small account, um, they couldn't really man it with a lot of people. So Victor, my partner and I, and an account executive assembled one other team to help us fill out some thinking. And from there, we got into a shootout with another agency and it went on and on and the pitch was prolonged. And uh, meanwhile, we're dealing with a very small group of people at Turner Classic Movies, basically three people, the two women who founded it, who created it for Ted Turner, and one of their colleagues who was sort of the point person with the advertising agencies. And it was very small and it was very intimate and um, it was tough and it was fulfilling and um, it went on and on and on. And the more it went on, the fewer bodies we had at our disposal. And so just by necessity, Victor and I went and we, by God, we won that, that account for Leo Burnett, the two of us and, and an account guy. And when we met them, they asked us after the pitch, they said, who are all those people who came to the pitch? We said, well, that was, <laughs> you know, those were all the top executives and everybody. And they said, frankly, we don't want those people. We want the, the people who are going to be doing the work. And that was that was a that was a really fresh thing to hear at a big global agency like a Leo Burnett from a client to say, we only want the two of you. We want the two creative people. Um, we know our business. We know our brand. We need for you to do the things that we can't do. We know everything else. And it was a glimpse into another realm for Victor and me. Um, we parted ways with Leo Burnett after almost 20 years. And we took some time off and we said, well, we've kind of done everything you could do in advertising. We had contributed to ev almost every single client in Leo Burnett's portfolio, um, it, you know, in big, big accounts. At any given time, Victor and I were creative directors on Morgan Stanley, Nintendo, uh, General Motors, Delta Airlines, uh, and then, you know, and Turner Classic Movies. And uh, mm -hmm. most fulfilling of all was Turner Classic Movies. And we really learned our lessons there about the 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 beauty and importance of smallness. Um, the two women who created Turner Classic Movies and the two creative directors who did the work for Turner Classic Movies, the four of us were prolific. Um, we were efficient. Uh, we did more work in less time than anybody else at that, at that big agency. And more work and better work and award-winning work in less time um, and less pain than we'd ever experienced. And so we took that with us, and that's how we launched Scott and Victor. We said, what if we took on all the roles? Because we essentially did. And, you know, at the at the end of our sort of origin story, you know, we made a reference back to David Ogilvy, who's who had lamented that, you know, um, it, you know, if, if advertising agencies were a dairy farm, you had more milkers than you had cows. <laughs> and so we posed the question back philosophically, well, what if the cows could milk themselves? And that's our philosophy. We do it all. Um, we start as the account executives. Uh, we morph into the planners. And the whole time we're creative directors and we have our lens set 
on what a creative expression can be for a brand. From anything from the very beginning, from the name to the URL to the business card to whatever big splashy ad campaign there might be, although those are few and far between now, whatever the social media presence might be, I should say. So, I mean, I love, I think there's something really beautiful in that idea there that you you just shared, which is this, you know, and you hear it so often when when people are talking about great work that's revered through, you know, for many years, that it's often that there was a relationship at the heart of that where the clients and whoever was creating that work sort of connected and saw eye to eye and there was, a, you know, like a push and a pull between them and an understanding of of what was trying to be achieved, what the outcome was, and then sort of this relentless pursuit of that. Um, so, so you've carried that into to Scott and Victor. Is it, uh, you know, can you tell me a little bit about the how massive your your agency is? Um, you know, how how big the org chart is that you you've built up. <laughs> Uh, it's, it, it sounds almost ridiculous to say. Um, Scott and Victor is um, Scott, myself, and Victor, my partner, and that's it. Um, you know, it was really, uh, again, um, I have to give all credit uh, to Leo Burnett, where we really did learn every facet of advertising, marketing, branding, um, surrounded by brilliant minds. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we were, you know, we were, again, we were, we were sort of always removed from the people who were most, I guess, invested in the brands that we served, you know, um, again, while there were many brilliant minds who ran those accounts, we didn't meet Mr. Kellogg, you know, um, we didn't meet Mr. General Motors, <laughs> um, you know, and so, we just decided that let's go to the other extreme. We've been in the big ivory tower of, you know, with the titans of advertising for many years. And what if we did the opposite? What if we really challenged ourselves to really take on all the roles and see how far we can go with it? We'd had a taste from Turner Classic Movies. And it just happened that, you know, we started attracting, once we put our, our sort of shingle up, um, we were known enough in, in the local um, advertising industry that there were, you know, some clients who had needs that were not as, you know, vast as required by <laughs> Leo Burnett, uh, you might say. And so we started getting called upon um, other colleagues of ours who had been released into the wild and had found themselves in other places um, started calling on us. And um, I'm reluctant to say um, but it must be said that we've almost done no solicitation of clients in our 13-year history. Wow. Uh, we've been very, very fortunate. And, um, you know, skipping ahead to the RX bar phenomenon, which is inevitable in this conversation, I'm sure, um, you know, we've been very fortunate to be recommended by uh, Peter Rahal specifically and uh, many of the, the the brains and minds he's touched, um, uh, and he's really uh, he's really out there, and he's and he's really involved in a lot of things. And we've been very fortunate to have a lot of people coming our way, and they're all of the same sort of echelon of um, founder, uh, startup, uh, inventor. Uh, sometimes they come to us with only a broad concept of what their product will be. 
sometimes they are established and they just haven't uh, had the success they hoped in the marketplace, or they're successful, but they're just not happy with the way they look and feel. They've just never been comfortable wearing what they're wearing, if you will. We've had several of those. And so the only the, our clients come to us at different spots along the continuum of development. But the one thing they all have had in common, and I think that maybe we maybe we just cosmically seek it out. Maybe it's just evident in our work and our portfolio. Maybe people can see themselves in our portfolio. We hope so. Um, but we have been fortunate to work with people who are directly invested in their product, deeply connected to their brand, and have an understanding of their brand that they just haven't been able to articulate. That's our best set up for success. And that's what we do. We, we mine the depths of our client partners until we drive them crazy by asking them why and why and why and why until there are no more whys. And then we found it. Uh, we found the, the center of the Tootsie Roll pop. I mean, I like, I think there's, you know, it's lovely that you've got that clarity on, on who the right person for you is. And I think this is such a, it's often quite a daunting question for, for people who are starting a brand or managing a brand or own a brand is finding the right partner to, to bring it to life. And I think it's, it's often, it's not like there's one answer to fit at all. It could be the freelancer. It could be the small studio. It could be Leo Burnett. And I think it all depends on the kind of engagement you want and the kind of, kind of, you know, work that you want to be produced for you. And I think there's, there's everything on that continuum. Um, you know, and, and I wasn't going to bring up RX bars, but since you started talking about <laughs> surprise, um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I was I was immediately interested. You know, when we saw the RX bar sort of the the rebrand and the the repackage, uh, you know, and then the the campaign and the growth of this bar, it's, it always struck a chord with me because I think there's something so simple in the execution of the package and and the copy on it with the ingredients listed with no BS that speaks so deeply into the kind of culture and origin story and purpose of that brand. Uh, I'd love to understand just a little bit about how you, how did you get there? How did you get to something so, so clean and so neat and so simple? Um, you know, and, and I'm sure it was part of, you know, like an engagement, but how do you, how do you achieve work with such clarity and such singularness that, that talks so much in, in a simple way? Uh, it's very it's very transparent, frankly. If you if you if you appreciate the RX Bar package, you'll appreciate the founder of RX Bar. Um, it's a direct line to um, Peter's whole uh, personality. Peter Ray Hall, the founder, with Jared Smith and Sam McBride. Those are the three we met uh, when they were um, all up in arms about their packaging, which they hated. <laughs> they hated it. And they had spent a lot of money on it, and they had a phenomenal product. I mean, the first time we met them, um, we just uh, there was a sampling of the new um, uh, chocolate sea salt flavor that Peter was developing. He said, here, taste this. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> this tastes so indulgent. This can't be good for me. But... Um, I was shocked at how great the product was, frankly, and kind of um, equally sad about how poorly it was being presented. 
they, you know, when we first met, Peter was very anxious and very, they were very eager. They um, had saturated the CrossFit market. They designed the bar for CrossFit. And the name of the bar is a dog whistle to CrossFitters, RX bar. It's the reflective of the of the prescribed workout regimen of CrossFitters. And it worked. It was very smart um, what they did. And so CrossFitters are very much a club. And they really appreciated that there was something being created for them. And so Peter and Jared had gone door to door and they'd really had a lot of success selling to the CrossFitters, but they wanted to break into the larger market. They wanted to get into Kroger and they, no one was paying attention to them because their, their packaging was essentially invisible. It looked like everything else. It was very corporate is what I would call it. The top faces on the package tended towards Helvetica. And everything seemed to be sort of default. And um, they kind of got ripped off, frankly. It was a, some patch design firm, and they said it was 12 rounds of revisions, and um, they hated it. So we assessed it, and uh, we went away for a couple of days, Vic and I did, and we said, let's just take this, this and, and, and devise some questions to see how we can get to the root of how did, how did this happen? How did you become so unhappy? Um, you're in control. I mean, this is your brand, your product. You made it in your basement. You named it. You they did their original packaging themselves, which frankly was better. What they did on PowerPoint was better than what they had paid for. And we actually told them that. We said well, you should you should go back to what you did first. But um barring that, let us assess this. And so we looked on the package and uh all the new terminology about bad things was coming up, like you know, non-GMO and no artificial ingredients ingredients, no added sugar, all those things. And that was all contained within a little box, um, a square box on the package that had Helvetica type. And in, in each little box of the boxes was non-GMO, no added sugar, no artificial flavors. And the last one said no BS. And Victor and I went, I wonder what that is. So we went back for our second meeting and we said, all right, here's our assessment. Why did you do this? Why does that say that? Why does it say prescribed by nature? Why are you pushing the whole, like, it's feeling very medical. Well, it was CrossFit. But we moved, right, right, right. So we assessed everything. We said, oh, by the way, we know GMO, um, all the other stuff, but what is BS? And Peter just kind of looked at us crazy and said, well, bullshit. And we were incredulous. We said, you put no bullshit on your package. Well, yeah. Well, why? Well, because every other protein out bar out there has bullshit ingredients in it. People are getting bullshitted. They think they're eating stuff that's healthy, but they're not. They're eating sugar and, and all this crap. This bullshit. We found the pulse. Yeah. And um, all we did from then on was just we, we kept our finger on that pulse and we kept checking it at every turn. And it proved to be a common element, a, a direct line from Peter Ray Hall himself, who is straightforward, honest, and no bullshit through his product, which contains no bullshit. And so we almost felt like it was evident that we had to do a package that was no bullshit to strip away any facade that might keep you from reading the label. So we made the label up front, and it signed off with no BS. That's the signature. And I love that. And it's the truth. 
it's the truth. It's how they built their company. It's how they hired. It's how they spoke to people. It's how they've gone about. That's how they went about their business from day one. It was this. It was the truth. I think it's such a lovely example of how that that client sort of designer relationship can be that the the truth is there so it's not like the clients don't know what they're doing that they don't understand but they don't have that objectivity that outsider's opinion that can come in and go it's that exactly like that exactly. that's it that's what we need to, to shine a spotlight on and be good to go exactly or if they do have some glimpse of that vision or they do or they are self-aware of what their brand can be they might lack, they just might not be writers and art directors. I mean, it, it really is, it's always there though. It's always there. If there's one thing that we've learned with every single client we've worked with over these last 13 years, every single one, we've never concocted anything. I told you this before and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll memorialize it here for the general public. Why <laughs> does Victor have one brand pillar? And it is this. We don't make shit up. I like that. And if you, you've never made anything up, which sounds counterintuitive being an advertising, it, you know, coming out of the advertising world. Yes, of course, because it used to be very combative, right? I mean, it was it was always set up as 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 combat. I mean, it was always the the creatives versus the account people, the agency versus the client. And that made no sense to me. Um, I was actually, that was acknowledged when I was at Portfolio Center back in 1987. Ron Seacrest, the founder, um, was so ahead of his time um, and continues to be, I'm sure, um, in, in whatever uh, capacity he, he is in, in the advertising world anymore. Um, but he was really, really forward thinking and he acknowledged that even it didn't make any sense because we had you know we were students at an art school and we didn't know agency dynamics but he said you know he said there's this he said it, it, it it's a fallacy that you know creatives are combative with the account people you're all supposed to be working together to make better work and you're all supposed to be working together to sell that work to the client and you're supposed to be working with the client to not sell them on work but sell them the work that they embrace and love. And that always stuck with me, despite the fact that from day one at Leo Burnett, it was combat. And uh, I was ready for it. And, you know, it, it made us better and tougher. Um, we had to find every technique in the world to sell, uh, to sell an idea. Um, I became uh, really skilled at presenting, very confident. Um, but it was always lacking um a real connection uh to the client i always found that it was lacking i always felt like i know this i can see it i believe in it and i have to try to convince you and i think victor and i when we started we said we don't want to be in the convince business anymore we want to be in the delight business I like that. And I suppose it's, it stands testament to to how that worked. I mean, you said that Peter still recommends you today. Like, so if he meets someone who would need your, your services, your name is one that he would pull out of his pocket. So I think that stands testament. But even though, I mean, on the on the to Rx to, account... To say that he's been, been gracious <clears throat> is an understatement. And to say that we're grateful is an equal, equal understatement. Um, he's really done wonders for our business. Um, and the 
the case study itself has done wonders for our business, and we're, we're forever grateful for that. Um, but we have others we've worked with who uh, give us strong references as well, and it's not because we're playing politics. Um, it's because we're being honest. Hmm. I like that. I mean, I think that's a lesson for for everyone. Um, but you you ultimately lost is the wrong word, but the the RX account moved to to a big um, agency, uh, Wyden Kennedy, if I'm not yep. mistaken. Um, yep. uh, but you weren't, you know, most most creatives I meet are lament when they lose it. Can can you talk a little bit about what it was like handing something like that over and and what your, your thoughts are about it? <laughs> well, we've always admired Wyden and Kennedy. How do you not? I mean, the home of just do it. I mean, it's iconic. Um, hmm. We've always admired other agencies, uh, you know, the award-winning agencies, of course. Uh, we're, we admire the ones who do the smart work and not just the ones who win all the boxes of trophies, but the, the ones who do the, the smartest work. Um, there's no denying Wyden and Kennedy. It's, um, again, it's iconic. And when we heard, um, you know, when we started with RX Bar, they were, they were, they were tiny. Um, you know, uh, we stretched their budget to do the package design, frankly. And uh, we knew um, going into it that there would be no big major projects for at least some time. And but what their first, their second, their first need was a package. Their second need was a brand book. And they said, you know, we're going to be hiring aggressively, and you know, if the more success that we have, and we're going to be planning for more success, and so we need that brand book so that we can have something to hand to people who says, you know, this is what we're all about, and this is how we act, and this is how we talk, and this is what we're, this is what we are. And you know. We did that, and and we observed them, you know, uh, filling more and more social media, and everything was in house. And then, you know, when the big sale happened, um, uh, we Victor and I were having lunch with Peter, and he said, uh, you know, we're looking at big agencies, and it was, well, of course you are. I mean, you know, you're basically Kellogg bought them so they could go global, and. Yeah. Uh, Certainly, an agency of two people is not equipped to go global. We are more than confident in creating global level ideas, but fulfilling them does take an army. Hmm. And so we knew the dynamic. And so when Peter said, "Yeah, we're looking at big agencies," you know, we kind of gulp and like, "Who are you looking at?" He said, "Wyden Kennedy." We went, "That's awesome!" We're like, "Yes, that's great. That's great. They will be great. They will be great. They will be great." And I think he was even a little bit surprised. He was like, you know, well, why? And we're like, well, you know, you know very well. I'm sure that it's, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure like, you know, early on in your introduction, uh, just do it must have been dropped somewhere. So, you know, you're in very, very good company. And then when we saw the work emerge uh, with Ice-T, the campaign, which I thought was brilliantly done. And they, we looked at the work and, 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 saw it being revealed and started getting um, emails and notes and messages from our colleagues in other uh, cities uh, where the work was specifically San Francisco. We had a lot of friends there and they were aggressively doing uh, outdoor and, um, you know, the commercials were running nationally. And Victor and I started getting phone calls of congratulations from all of our friends. And we said, well, we're not doing this work. Uh, it's widening and and uh people were surprised and we, they said well it looks 
like the package and everything and said, yeah, I said, we're, we're, we're ecstatic because they're following our style guide and brand book to the letter. So it was almost as if <laughs> we were um, ghost creative directors or something on that because the kind of work that we would have done, it was sort of self-evident. It was, you know, no bullshit, stripped back, you know, a little bit meta, um, but it's exactly the kind of thinking. It was no surprise to us. I, I you know, Ice T was a surprise. His presence was was surprising, and um, they know that. You know, as craftspeople, they knew that that would make people. You know, if for no other reason, what is Ice T doing with the protein bar? Mm. So they did a beautiful job, and um, we just we felt connected to it, even though we didn't do that work. We were very, very proud of it, even though we didn't do that specific work. But that's how we geek out on strategy. You know, we're just not those creatives who are just looking for the trophies. Um, we like yeah. for it to be meaningful and lasting and um, to do a brand book and a style guide that anybody can pick up and follow, particularly um, an agency as formidable as, as Wyden Kennedy, um, was fulfilling for us, very. And now, now so, so a lot of this comes around your philosophy around briefing, um, you know, and getting the right brief. Uh, you know, you've got a story of how you you learn to brief, um, you know, in in design school, and you still use it today. Can you talk a bit about like what makes a good brief? What is your brief, and what are those four questions that you always ask a client to unpack this stuff? Yeah, um, you know, I'm kind of giving the recipe to the secret sauce, but it's everybody's secret. Uh, we just simplified it. Um, you know, uh, the analogy that I often use is that you know. We, we're getting frustrated as creative, you know, the longer you're a creative person at a big agency and the, the more problems you solve and the more um, opportunities you seize and the more work you create and the more experiences you have, you just want more and more and more. And for us, it was, we just wanted to have a seat at the table from the very beginning. We were, briefs used to be very uninspired. You know, this is pre the pre-planner sort of, um, era, um, in the U S anyway, um, planners, we didn't really have that, that, that role yet when I first started and we had, you know, a research department and account people. And somehow those two would come together and create some alchemy that they called a brief, but it was mostly just facts. It was the facts of what the product is. And here's the facts now go and have a phenomenal idea. And uh, creative things. Yeah. Make so, the make the creative. Yeah, so just make the creative. And so yeah. um from day one, I had this little brief that I had had been taught to me at Portfolio Center, a brilliant woman named Doreen Devoren. And Doreen said, This is she said, I picked up this brief at one of the agencies where I used to work. And it's the simplest and most direct and most effective I've ever used. And so I just folded it up and I put it in my back pocket and I kept it in my back pocket for almost 20 years at Leah Burnett. So we'd be have, give, handed what was considered a brief, um, you know, uh, I guess technically. Um, and then we would overlay um, our own brief. And so walk into a room and people would go, how did you come up with that? Um, and we'd go, well, it wasn't on the brief, was it? What are those four questions? What are the, what what's on that secret piece of paper in your back pocket? They're deceptively simple. Um, what are we trying to accomplish? Who are we talking to, and what insights do we have about them? 
What's the single most important thing we have to say? And why will they believe it? You know, they seem simple, um, but at every, in every case, you know, what do you want to accomplish is not sell more blank. Wrong answer. That's a big question. And even though it's the first question that appears at the top of the page, it's usually the last one we can answer. The question we spend the most time on is who are we talking to and what insights do we have about them? And the key word there is insights. So we don't data mine. Uh, we pour over data. We can read data. We can read research reports, and but we don't conduct focus groups. We can read all those outputs, and we can read between the lines. We conduct our own interviews. That's as much research as we do. Um, that's our discovery stage. That's mm -hmm. our sort of account executive planner stage. Um, that's when we're trying, kind of playing planner. And we love it, frankly. We love it because we have unstructured conversations. Um, and we elicit very candid answers uh, from the people we interview. Uh, one of the, what we're always looking for is what's not on the data report. <laughs> what hasn't been said? What mm. are you holding back? Uh, we listen between the cracks, we say a lot of times. And we're very strategic listeners. I mean, ultimately, we're both creative people. I'm a writer. Victor's an artist graphic designer, art director. And we always have that lens. We're always, we're always listening through that filter of what can this turn into? What sort of creative expression can this be? How does this feed into a larger um, idea? And so we're, we don't go into it with any sort of, we just, we liberate ourselves from having any sort of like, what are we trying to accomplish with this phone call? It's just a phone call. It's just a conversation. And then we go back and we look at all the conversations we have had with a certain certain client group and we look for the dots to connect. We look for themes that develop. What is everybody saying or what is everybody not saying? And we put it all together and that's how we start to populate the brief. And so when we build the brief, we invite our client partners in to build it with us in a session live. Mm. Populated with everything they've told us. It's just arranged in a way that they hadn't thought about it. I love that. It's uh, I like also like that statement that it's deceptively simple, um, and I think that is the always the argument for using outside help for whatever. Because while you might understand the objectives and the the big things you're trying to achieve, sometimes that deceptively simple answer is just it comes better from a writer, you know, the way they can just look at words and assemble them back together in a way you're like, Ooh, that's really good. It's the same thing with editors. Like I know how to use editing software, but I've got a friend, Evie Katz, who's a very good editor and he'll spend five minutes on a video that I've been tinkering with for five days. And it'll go from a video to something that you go, this is good. Like this is this is something that I would want to watch, and it is that it's deceptively simple. Like it's easy to chop up video and put them next to each other. It's easy to look for kind of patterns and acknowledge them. But I think the magic comes when when someone realizes or connects those dots in a special way. Yeah, I mean, back to the small versus big argument. Um, you know, I think it's appropriate in in this in, in on this topic. Um, 
is that you know you don't get you don't get clouded by a lot of outside noise. You know, you get very you we're able to 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 pull our client partners into real concentration and, and think about the things that they haven't thought about. You know, we set up to do only those functions that a client group can't do themselves. We don't do focus groups because we figure they've already done them if they need them. In our existence, no client has ever asked us to do any research for them. They've never even asked for it. They either have it or they don't want to do it. And what's Mm. interesting is, and I don't know if it's true of every category or every size of client, you know, we've been so immersed in, again, sort of the uh, smaller startup, um, scrappier sort of, you know, client situation uh, for the last several years. But nobody wants to bring, nobody wants to outsource their branding. Um, mm. We've had that played back to us. They said, we, or I'm sorry, crowdsource. They're, they're like, you know, we don't, wanna, we don't want others to tell us what our brand is. And in fact, we had a very established brand, very successful brand, uh, calling us just recently. And they said, you know, we are very successful in the professional side of our product offering. And we uh, are getting more traction in the consumer realm but we just don't know the consumer realm as much. And we really need your help in pivoting uh, our brand to focus more on consumers, uh, regular consumers, domestic consumers, not professional people. Um, And what we, we we just observed everything that they had done and been doing and um, corroborated all the great things that they were doing and said, you know, you, you've said this phrase a lot about yourselves and why aren't you using it? And they just didn't, they didn't realize the power of it. They didn't know that it would be compelling uh, to mm. consumers. And we just, it, we said, you say it in your videos all the time. You've said it on your website. It's in your brand book. Um, why that, is that, that not the central guide for your entire brand? And it was just sort of like, Wow. Well, yeah. Well, why isn't it? And that was it. And now it is. Yeah. I love that. Um, can Can you talk a little bit? I mean, and I think you might have been referencing that now, but sort of the work you did with Red Wing. Um, uh, actually, you know, and I, and I find that <laughs> <laughs> that was not a reference to Red Wing, but uh, it was somebody entirely but, different. But it's very interesting. You know, Red Wing for me is one of those brands. I mean, I think they've been going for a hundred years or something. Equally as ridiculous as that. They started in 1905, yeah. Now, how do you go about, you know, so you work in the startup space quite often where you're close to the founder and you're close to the origin point. How does that change when you're 90-odd years you know, away from that origin point and there's so much, so many layers of, of history that you can't, you know, it doesn't make any sense to wipe them away and start fresh. Like, how does how does how do you approach something like that, which is so different to to an RX bar when you're hearing it from the the creator's mouth to now you're hearing it via many years and and, and many generations. Um, we entered into something like that with, and it's not just us. Um, everyone involved in that project. Um, entered into it with uh, bravery and confidence, frankly. Uh, there was a new CMO. Uh, he was brand new 
to Red Wing and was just making observations. Um, they He did a little road show in Chicago and uh, looked at a lot of different agencies of all sizes, including Victor and me. And um, we got invited to do the project. And uh, so even that was intimidating. <laughs> you know, if you step back and go, oh, shit, we're in a pitch. And it could be big agencies. Like, but we just have to be confident in what our offering is. We're not going to try to be like a big agency. We're Scott and Victor, and this is what we do. Hmm. And they were attracted to it. Just like the CMO who bravely went to Red Wing and said, this is what I see and this is what I don't like. And I just don't think this is helping the brand. And so we were invited to come to Red Wing, Minnesota and spend two and a half days and just observe. And so we had to be confident. This is where the confidence comes in. We have to be confident in knowing that there will be a salient idea that emerges from all of this. We don't have to have that idea going in. We don't have to have any objective going in whatsoever except to observe. And you just have to be confident that, you know, your skills as a thinker and um, conceptualist and a strategist um, will always be there and they'll emerge at the right time. And so we really just went in with eyes wide open, observed everything, saw the things they were doing and 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 just opportunities that were there for them and applied went back and applied the exact same skills and the exact same processes that we we do for a startup that's uh is a blank piece of paper um we just started um we started interviewing we started talking to red wing wearers and users um of all kinds um mostly in the labor trade because that's where their bread and butter is uh, learning all about their history and absorbing it, um, and being reverent, uh, frankly. Um, again, um, we don't make shit up. And there was plenty of shit not to make up for Red Wing. Um, uh, it, it, it was, we, when we discovered that they had an archive, um, a room, and a curator, um, and they had kept all of their advertising materials over all these years. Can you imagine some of the things the happiness, from, the joy. from 1910 and from 1920 and from 1930? How can we, you know, what are, what are the ties here? What are the themes that have always been here? Um, mm-hmm. What have they always been dedicated to? Where have they never wavered despite, you know, the, the weird tacky flourishes of the 70s? Um, you know, the sort of like, you know, blunt in your face, sort of, you know, you're a workhorse and here's your work boot, uh, kind of attitude from the uh, early teens and stuff. Um, you know, what are those central themes? What have they always stuck by? It also helped that, you know, uh, the new CMO had come in and, uh, had worked with his team to develop a purpose statement. You know, they'd never had one before. They'd never really established their, their purpose. And, uh, that was really a helpful guide, uh, for us to know where they were coming from and where their hearts were. And it really did inform everything that we did. They wanted to modernize the look and feel. They wanted to appeal more to the newer generations entering the labor trades. Um, they were solid with, you know, 50, 50 years old and up, so, you know, forever. 
um, mm. and uh, hipsters um, like yourself, I hear, um, <laughs> who wanted to adopt that look. Um, you know, that was that was a, that was a real intersection for us uh, in determining what the brand should be. Um, you know, going forward, and or uh, what it should remain to be uh, going forward, and that was work work based. Their purpose statement is to build a legacy of work done right, and that was that was built on an observation of what the company had already, uh, had always done. So mm-hmm. even they themselves didn't come in to make shit up; they just defined what was already there and focused on it. And that helped us immensely. So when we got to the part of, well, what do we do with the heritage line, which is the what they, they would call the classics that have been adopted by fashionistas, hipsters, mm. um, uh, including myself. Uh, <laughs> I wear them myself, and I have never worked in the labor trades. Um, <laughs> but we had to determine and establish that those people are adopting um, a work look to their fashion that we don't shape shift. We're not a fashion brand. All of a sudden it's always a work brand. It's always mm. made for work. If you're wearing, uh, those, those red wing, uh, boots and you're at dinner and, uh, suddenly you have to, you know, fix a rail on a, on a, on a railroad line, uh, between, you know, entree and dessert. Um, you could do it. You're good. You're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I love, I love, it seems like this, this is sort of the, the trend, the theme is this idea of finding that, that truth and just sort of shining a light on it, just sort of bringing it to the fore. Um, yes. I'm, pro- I'm cognizant of, of the time and I'd like to ask you just sort of one last question and, and, you know, this one's maybe a little bit more philosoph- philosophical, but what role do you see, like, like what is a brand and what role do you think they play in shaping our culture and our societies? So, you know, for us, we use the word soul. And for us, a brand is the soul of a company. It's the, those are the human expressions. Those are those, um, this evidence of, of human life behind the inanimate object. Uh, you know, the, the classic TED Talk Golden Circle You've got your what you make, you've got your how you make it, and then you've got your why, and that's your brand. And for us, brands help people navigate through an endless, endless sea of products and offerings. They can always make claims that, you know, might sound appealing, but are they empty? Can you believe it? And, and what are those signs that make you believe in this product and what they offer? What makes you believe that if it breaks, they'll fix it? Or if you don't like it, they'll return your money? Or if they make something else, that you'll, that you'll find appeal there, or you'll give them the benefit of the doubt because you believe in, in the other product that you bought from them. Um, brand used to just mean um, a line of products. If you look in the dictionary and you look under brand, it just means a line of products offered by a company. But now brand has to be personality. It has to be, mm. what's your belief system? What are your principles? What are your values? What's your stance on sustainability? Um, all those come into play. And in a, in a completely transparent electronic world <laughs> uh, where everybody's first stop is to Google you, um, 
you better be telling the truth and you better be authentic. And so the brand really does become the people behind it in our echelon of, of, mm. of clients. Um, they really have to reflect the real values and principles and beliefs of the people who are making the product. And that's true of all of the, all of our clients, I would say. I love that. It's such a, such a inspiring thing to hear. And, and I really appreciate uh, the work that you're putting out there and the thoughts and the intention that you're doing behind it. And, uh, and I think also for the industry, I think it's important that you teaching clients how to have good partnerships. Cause I think that's definitely one of the reasons we make this podcast is to try and give people on both sides of the line, a little bit of a, a way of finding that common ground, because exactly like you said earlier on in the interview, that's the worst place to be when building a brand is to be in a combat, like a competitive environment, like versus your clients. It's, you have to work together. You have to, to do it. And I think this idea of, finding that thread that they can't see that they haven't been able to uncover and pulling it out is such a powerful way of, of showing the value in that sort of engagement so so thank you so much for coming on the podcast Scott. i really appreciate it thank you it was a pleasure speaking with you thanks for inviting me and yeah and it, uh, you're definitely the first person from from alabama that we've had on the podcast so <laughs> you're currently my favorite person from alabama so so thank you so much and and we'll we'll catch you in the the next exciting episode great roll roll tide thank you <laughs> cheers thanks for listening we believe that sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this podcast with them. This is our third season, and we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button so you're the first one to know when a new episode comes out. Or even better, leave us a review and tell the world how much you enjoy listening. This really helps. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork. NiceWork is a purpose-driven company helping people who want to make a dent in the world by building brands that people give a shit about. We're based in Johannesburg, South Africa and serve companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, partner with us or make a suggestion, reach out at www.nicework.co.za. And if you're one of those really old school people, send us a letter and we'll make you a mixtape.